I'd like for the rest of us to turn in our Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And it's another one of these uh, dreamscapes, if you please, of Daniel. Uh, as he lays on his bed, uh, he has a dream. And the dream terribly disturbs him. If you're in the fourth chapter and you're looking at verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High has done for me. That uh, prelude section probably belongs at the end of chapter 3. Because it comes after the king is astounded that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not even scorched by the fire. In fact, they didn't even have the smell of fire on them. And uh, it was so hot that it consumed his guard that threw them in. But they were walking around. And a fourth person was with them whom he said looked like one of the sons of the gods. Well, it was the Son of God. And with these three faithful servants, Jesus was in the flames with them, protecting them from any harm. But after uh, this uh, kind of benediction to that episode... Sometime later, Nebuchadnezzar um, has another dream. He says he was at ease in his house, verse 4, and flourishing in his palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind uh, kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and diviners came, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation. So finally, the king goes to his failsafe, who is Daniel. He has learned that Daniel uh, is able to interpret dreams, and uh, while he doesn't always... Uh, like what Daniel has to say, he does appreciate the fact that Daniel will speak the truth to him. And Nebuchadnezzar was essentially looking out upon his kingdom and thinking about his kingdom and thinking, my, I have done well. (laughs) I have really been good to myself. I have built this great city and this great kingdom by, by my ability and, and my wisdom and, and my appreciation of the arts and of, of the beauty and glory. Babylon, ancient Babylon, was a beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, uh, mosaics and tile entrances and relief uh, were no uh, strangers to him. He had designed a city that was glorious to walk through. And 
it tells you a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar that he wasn't just a warlike king, although he was a brilliant strategist and capable of overcoming the nations around him as he built his kingdom. But he was also an appreciation, uh, an appreciator of the arts and music. Music was a huge part of Babylonian culture. And so Nebuchadnezzar had a, a very cultured environment that would rival many today. I mean, there's nothing that, that we have that they didn't have. Maybe we have more technology but in terms of ideas and musicality and art, artistry and uh, all of those kinds of things, uh, we're not that far ahead of them. Civilizations have come and gone and grown and faltered. And so Nebuchadnezzar was thinking about how great he was. And he has this dream and he sees in the dream a tree that grows up and flourishes and its limbs spread out and it has all kind of fruit on it and the animals of the field take refuge under it and they find food to eat and sustenance. And and, uh, then all of a sudden a watchman from heaven comes down, an angelic being, and cuts the tree off at the stump. And uh, the tree is... Uh, scattered ab- abroad, and the animals flee, and no longer does it provide any um, shelter for them or any food. And it terrifies him, what he sees. And so he finally calls Daniel, and he says, Daniel, I need you to explain to me the interpretation of this dream. And as Daniel kind of listens to the dream, he becomes frightened. Um, I agree with one of the commentators that I read that Daniel was genuinely fond of King Nebuchadnezzar. Even though Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king and Daniel was a faithful Jewish follower, um, he had come to appreciate this man And Nebuchadnezzar had done marvelous things for Daniel. But he wasn't beyond fits of temper. And he wasn't beyond off with your head if he didn't like what you had to say. But as Daniel kind of looked at the situation and as God gave him the interpretation of the dream, I don't think it was so much himself for whom he feared, but it was actually Nebuchadnezzar because it says he sat down for about an hour and didn't say a word you know how it is in a conversation when you're waiting for people to uh, respond and they don't (laughs) and the silence grows and if you make up your mind that you're not going to interrupt it it could go on for a while But usually when we think a great silence has elapsed, it's only been seconds, maybe a minute. But Daniel sat there for an hour without saying a word. And finally, he said, O king, I wish 
this dream were about your worst enemies. But it isn't. It's about you. And you have looked at this kingdom and you have neglected the poor and you have mistreated the underprivileged. You have not done righteousness. And God is bringing judgment and He's going to cut you off. And like the beast of the field, you're going to be cut off for seven years. And you're not going to have this glorious kingdom. You're going to kind of lose your mind. And you're going to be driven from human beings and be by yourself. And the king began to tremble and and he basically said to Daniel, "Um, you have warned me and I will make a decision. I will care for the poor. I will bless the underprivileged. I will become a better king to my subjects. And he makes this determination. But unfortunately, his heart in terms of his sense of personal ability and pride doesn't change. And so verse 28 says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king reflected and said, now whether he had company or whether he said this to himself, we don't know, but he said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes." Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was filled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Can you imagine how this guy looked? He's naked, he's hairy, he looks like an ape. (laughs) Except he's got these long claws and this hair that's like an eagle's feathers and he's out sleeping in the woods. The dew is falling on his body. And seven years have gone by. There's something that we need to notice in this passage that is very important for us. 
in our prayer life today. We're coming up on another election time, aren't we? Don't you just love the rhetoric? People are so nasty to one another. Uh, They just sling mud and it's it's just ugly it it's sad because the character and the heart of people is revealed in the politicians i don't care what they are what party they represent their heart comes out in the battle to win the contest. And so don't make any mistakes in your thinking when you elect them, because that is who they are. And that is who they will be behind the scenes and when the chips are down. That person who ran a dirty race against an opponent. That's who they are. It's sad. But the scripture says God is the one who raises up those in power. And I remember years ago, and I don't say this because I agree with his teaching by any means in particular, but I remember years ago hearing Bill Gothard make the statement, People get the leadership they deserve. And we get the leadership we deserve as a people. And the reality is, is that God has a plan for this world. And every leader of every nation has a role to play in the development of that plan And even though Satan is the God of this earth, small g, according to Paul in Corinthians, he's the the mastermind behind uh, the, the wickedness of human beings. God is the one who determines who will rise to power and who will not. And he does so to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And if a nation is ripe for revival and the people are beginning to mourn for the loss of their character and the restoration of godliness, God may bless us with incredible godly leadership. And who knows what party they may come from. But on the other side of the coin, if we continue along the path we're going, our leaders simply are representatives of our own behavior. Now, it may not be your behavior in particular, but it is our behavior as a nation. And the pride and arrogance that existed in the contending countries in World War II 
simply found leadership that espoused and promoted the ideas of the people. You can't rise to power if you're singing a solo. There has to be some harmony with the people. There has to be some willingness. And so when wicked people come to power, they do so ultimately because God permits it. And they do so because the people are accepting of it. And the same is true of godliness. But God is the one who is in charge of the nations. And we need to remember that. We need to keep that in mind. That God is the one in charge of the nations. And he was the one in charge of Nebuchadnezzar. So, he he needed to uh, get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. He had allowed him to overcome Judah and take captive the Jews. By the way, I didn't uh, mention in my prayer time, and I meant to, but we need to be praying uh, for the congregation in Pennsylvania that suffered the uh, terrible loss yesterday. Uh, the Jewish uh, synagogue that was uh, shot up by uh, basically a, a white supremacist that hated Jews is what it amounted to. And, and that's a tragedy. And even though we may differ about our Lord Jesus Christ, they are precious human beings in the sight of God. And my heart breaks. Some of the most brilliant minds have come out of that area uh, and attended those universities that are nearby and have uh, accomplished great things um, for humankind and for our nation. And to be so uh, tragically massacred as they were and terrified. But God had allowed Nebuchadnezzar to overcome Judah and lead away captives, among whom was Daniel. And God had allowed him to build a kingdom. And part of God's overarching plan was to preserve and protect the Jewish remnant so that they would not completely go off into idolatry. In fact, what better way to make you hate idolatry than to immerse you in all of its ugliness, which is in essence what Babylon was. It was an immersion in the ugliness of idolatry, despite its physical beauty. And, and there were horrible things done in the name of religion. And these people were uprooted from their homes. And really, the Babylonian captivity cured the Jewish people. They never again returned to overt outward idols after they were restored uh, to Jerusalem. They had had it. They were done, and God had cured them. 
But anyway, Nebuchadnezzar uh, finds himself at the end of this period of time out in the woods looking and behaving like an animal. And one of the amazing things is that for seven years while he was gone, no one took his place. And part of the reason for that was because there wasn't anyone capable of his leadership. Uh, he had a son, and whether he was too young or didn't show the ability uh, and capacity to lead the nation of Babylon, no one really knows. But, but the fact is that no one could step into Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. He, he was truly an exceptional person, despite his idolatry himself. And then he says, after the seven, seven years, at that time my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. For all His works are true, and His ways just, and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. You know, people may overpower other people. And Daniel or someone else could have tried to, to bring Nebuchadnezzar down to his knees and all he would have to do is have him executed. But when you go up against the God of heaven and try to usurp his place, you're done from the beginning. You are lost. And God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar in a way that he recognized everything he had came from God. The Most High God, the God of Heaven. I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar ever truly turned with all of his heart to God. Or if he just got warm and then cold again. But I do know that he knew through Daniel who God was. And this experience certainly led him to proclaim the true ways and the just ways of the God of heaven. And he says he is able to humble those who walk in pride. I want to spend the remainder of my time talking about Pride, because the scripture says pride comes before the fall. And in the inner thoughts of a prideful heart, and by the way, that pretty well includes everyone except believers who have truly bowed the knee toward the Lord, we're inclined to view our accomplishments as our own doing. <clears throat> the two passages of Scripture I have given you, if you want to look those up later, talk about people 
who view their accomplishments as something they did themselves. You remember the great Sinatra song, I did it my way? That's how a lot of people live, and that's how they want to die. I did it my way, and they have no idea what that really means. Because if you're doing it your way, you're not doing it God's way. And as a consequence, there is an awful price to pay. But, but we are inclined in a prideful heart to view our accomplishments as things we've done ourselves. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7, uh, particularly in verse 7, What do we have that we have not received? What do we have that we have not received? You say, well, look, I, I made something of myself. I went to college. I, I got a master's degree. I got a doctorate. I, I uh, used my money wisely. I built this home that we live in. I drive these very nice cars. I did it my way. I mean, I, I'm the one that did this. No one did this for me. I accomplished my own goals. You know... You could have been born with an IQ of about 40. You didn't have anything to say about how you were born. You could have been born in the heart of Africa and never had the opportunity to go to a school. You could have been somewhere off the beaten path, and no one ever discovered you. I wonder how many great baseball players, how many great football players, how many truly great basketball players have never been observed by a scout. There are probably young people that play basketball in concrete courts and rims with no basket in the inner city that can outplay a good number of the pros, but they've never been seen. And they've never had the opportunity. So if, if you're a, a pro ball player and you say, look what I've done for myself, what have you done? Did you practice? Did you work hard? Yes, of course you did. You can't do it without it. But where did you get the dexterity? Where did you get the fine motor control? Where did you get the speed? Where did that come from? What do you have that you have not received? God has blessed us in ways that we don't even think about. And the things that we have been given have been gifts of God. So even when we have uh, that outstanding accomplishment where we have excelled beyond our peers, we can only give credit and glory to God. If we see things rightly, we can only praise Him. 
You could be born in poverty and never have a chance to go to college, even though you have the mind for it. There's all kinds of things that people lose, not because they're not capable. You know what's interesting to me? Do you see all those little children in the video we watched? What is interesting to me is oftentimes when you take those children who have had no education, no training, they live in mud huts with thatched roofs, but they're brilliant. They're brilliant. And you take them out of that environment and you give them a chance. I'm not talking about moral decisions here. Some people blame their immorality and drug addiction and alcoholism and abusive behavior on their environment. It is not. It's their choice. But you take them out of that environment where the opportunities are minimal and you put them in a place where they have great opportunity and they excel tremendously. I met a guy at council, uh, our national meeting a few years ago, or every two-year meeting, I guess now. My friend Steve Hess introduced me to him. He, Steve had been to his village in Africa several times. And uh, this young man was uh, helping to bring the scriptures in the language of his own people. You know, we tried worshiping in English and Spanish, and it frustrated everybody <laughs> on both sides of the coin. Um, but their church met, the one in Africa, met in three languages. They had three different praise teams. They had two translators for the speaker who, they didn't translate it through a closed audio system, they just all stood up there together speaking three languages when one of them preached. And um, I was talking to this young man. He, uh, he felt terrible. One of the farmers uh, over in Ohio where my friend pastors had offered to teach him to drive. He had never driven a car. He said, well, I've got all this farmland. What could you do wrong? So he took him out in the farm to drive the car, and poor guy, both of them actually, he ran right into a tree, broke the farmer's leg. <laughs> Driving was not among his skill set. But he had a Ph.D. in linguistics because he had opportunity. And he was very well aware that God had given it to him. He didn't stay here and teach for some big salary. He went back to Africa to put the scriptures in the language of his people. That was his goal. What do we have that we have not received? Damage is caused by prideful hearts. Damage to our family if we believe we're always right. Ever meet people like that? Are you a person like that? You're a <laughs> Marshall. 
You're disarmingly honest, I gotta tell you. <laughs> if we think we're always right, people around us eventually get shut out and they get wounded and they're hurt. We damage our colleagues because our secret thoughts are revealed in our action. We think we're smarter than they are. And we've got more to offer. And you can't hide that. You know, people know when you love them. Did you know that? You don't have to say it. it sometimes it helps. But people know if you love them. They sense it. They also sense when you despise them and look down upon them. They pick that up. And they sense that you think you're better than they are. Damaged by leadership because leaders develop a sense of entitlement. We fail to recognize the support and contribution others have made to help our success. You know, I don't know how you could become one of the heads of state or one of the governors of our states or whatever without the temptation of letting the security guard, the bodyguards, the limousines, the motor pools and all of that be... Uh, a part of your daily experience. You listen to past presidents and they tell you one of the most difficult things to get used to, again, is carrying around a charge card and some cash. Because for the whole time they're in the Oval Office, they hardly spend a dime out of their own pocket. That doesn't mean that it doesn't go toward their salary, but it just gets put on the expenses and they don't ever see it. They, they never have to buy anything, in essence. And so, you, you can kind of get used to that. And then you can begin to believe that it's owed you. You're someone special. You deserve it. You should be treated with extra blessings. Instead of being gracious and humble toward those around you. It's said of one of our recent presidents at the risk of uh, being a partisan a uh, week or so before the elections. I won't tell you who. But one of our presidents in the last 20 years was known for getting to know the staff by their first name. By caring about them and asking about their family. By looking out for their interest as well as his own. Because if he did believe he deserved being there, he didn't show it. And that makes me think of Jimmy Carter, who at 90 is still out pounding nails and building homes for Habitat for Humanity. And he and his wife go out and 
try to bless and help people. And uh, they say he's a tough taskmaster to be around. If he's on the job site, he doesn't like people standing around with their hands in their pockets. But, um, but he has a humble heart. Whatever you may think of him as president, it doesn't change. And he will tell you in a heartbeat. Because he still teaches his Sunday school class that Jesus is the difference in my life. Pride is universal, and it comes in many forms. You can all recognize arrogance. That's the person that thinks they're it, and they show it. Narcissism, that may be a little more subtle, but the narcissist believes they're smarter and better than everyone else, and they see themselves as deserving the focus of attention. And they're entitled to whatever they want, including the ownership of their family, spouse in particular. Narcissists are very possessive people. And when they don't get what they want, they become very abusive people. And it's the heart and root of pride that spills into a family where people ought to love one another at the highest level. And they want to domineer and control and mastermind the home. I, I counseled a fellow at one time many years ago who every time his wife went somewhere, he went out to the garage and checked the mileage. And then he came back and got in his car and drove the mileage. And then he asked her to explain any deviation from his journey. And he threw a fit if she couldn't give an accounting for every tenth of a mile she had driven. That's classic narcissism. I'm the owner here. I'm the boss. I'm in control. You belong to me. And you will do what I tell you. Because I'm always right. And the world should bow at my feet. Especially you in this household. See, that's, that's the ugliness of pride. One of the things that's surprising to us is that self-loathing is a form of pride. You've met that person. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not capable of that. What do you have had 10 years of training? Yeah, but I'm not good enough. And nobody likes me anyway. I'll just sit here and criticize everything. Never run into somebody like that? I'm not worth anything. Nobody loves me. What do you think? The whole world is focused on you? That's the mindset that's behind that. Everybody's watching me. Everybody's looking at me. Everybody's judging me. Everybody's evaluating me. Who? What makes you think you're so important? 
You know, I've had people come up to me through the years and say, I know you were talking about me in your sermon. (laughs) And I've said to them, I hate to break the news to you, but I wasn't even thinking about you in my sermon. (laughs) You never crossed my mind. I almost got sued one time over that years and years ago. Because someone thought I was betraying something that they had told me in confidence. And I thought, you never crossed my mind. What makes you think I had you in mind? It wasn't even that close. People that look down on themselves and devalue themselves before God... And behave as if they're unloved and unwanted and of no value are really covering a heart of pride. Because they believe that everybody is watching them. You know, Paul said in Romans, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. We all have worth and value before God, and we have aptitudes and spiritual gifts. We are called by the Lord. Work as unto the Lord, not unto men. Step up to the plate and do your job. And don't expect thanks or recognition. Now, those who see you doing it ought to give it to you. But whether they do or not is immaterial. God has called you. He's equipped you. He's gifted you. He has given you the ability to do certain things. Just do them. Don't think more highly than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment so that you do what you're called to do. Paul says in that great passage where Jesus leaves his place at the Father's right hand and comes to this earth in the form of a man, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed as God, did not regard it robbery to be equal with God. He gave up his position and came to this earth and walked in our shoes and experienced our sorrows and our griefs. And on the cross, he took our pains and our suffering and he died for us. And friends, when we come to the cross, we need to be aware that the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. If you have truly come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know that you're a sinner and that's the only camp there is, those who are lost and those who are saved. The lost need you to tell them the good news. The saved need you to love them as a brother or sister. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Father, open our hearts to receive your word this morning.
Amen.